0: And so we're happy to study the scriptures together here at TCC, uh, systematically going verse by verse through God's word together. And our focus is going to be for this season on the book of James, living out the word, poverty and in pain. Let's pray together and then we'll go to the word of God. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your glorious grace that you've bestowed upon this church. God, let us come now with the appropriate perspective to your word. James is a hard book. James will set us straight. James might not be a place that we would run to in the midst of our pain and suffering first, but help us to see and treasure Christ through our study today in James 2, God. Land upon us in a fresh way. Wake us up. Give us attention as we seek to study the Bible together, send us out as missionaries. Let us consider ourselves people sent out into the community, into our state, and even to the ends of the earth because of our reflection on the book of James. Help us now, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life when I really felt... My utter foolishness was in graphic display for everyone to see. Like an IMAX theater, baby. That was who I was. I recently went home and I met with my first cousin and got to talk to him. He reminded me and my children of a particular foolish time in my life. When I was a teenager, I was doing some things you should never do. One of the things I was doing was playing with fire. I liked to see things blow up. I like firecrackers, and that was a part of my childhood. We lived out in the country, so you couldn't really blow up buildings or anything, but it was still dangerous. And one of the things we did as kids was we would uh, shoot and throw the fireworks at one another. We would play armies, and we would get going. Again, you shouldn't do this. I'm not recommending it. I'm saying it's foolish. But one time, the way we would play is we had bottle rockets. If you know what that is, that's the one with the stick, and it shoots, and it blows up. (laughs) We would shoot those at one another. We couldn't hit each other usually, but it was fun to try. And the way you would do it is you might have a bottle and a bag of firecrackers. You would light it with a match and it would shoot at somebody. And then you grab another one, light it. I remember the day distinctly when I decided I was going to revolutionize the whole practice of firecracker war. So I went to my cousin and said, look, I've got a three-phase plan. First, I'm not going to use a bottle or a cup anymore. I'm going to use a PVC pipe that I have rigged up as a gun, right? I might put some spiraling in there, some rifling action, so that when I drop it, this thing's going to shoot straight. So I did that, and he raised his eyebrows like, what are you doing? And secondly, I'm going to affix dual lighters at the tip of this baby with duct tape so I no longer have to carry matches or a lighter. They'll always be on the gun. I can light, boom shoot. And finally, this was back before cargo pants were all the rage. I got some camo pants, cut them off at the knees. They have these huge pockets. Instead of carrying a bag of my ammunition, shove them in the pockets. I'm ready to go. I'm mobile, agile, hostile. I'm going to get it. So I told all my friends, this is me. We're going to do it. And of course, you can see where this is going. We entered the battlefield, which was somebody's farm, and we were shooting at one another. Man, I was on. Steph Curry of Bottle Works on a mission here, and we were going really good until all of a sudden I made a minor miscalculation, and I lit the uh, bottle rocket, and if you hold it too long, it starts to spark, and this one, I lit it, it started to spark, and the sparks unbeknownst to me went into my pocket. So I had 60 rounds of bottle rockets go off, not in the back, mind you, but in the front sensitive pocket, pew, 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 pew. I was deafened. I hit the ground, stopped dropping, row and row and row and row. By the time I got up with only half pants on, I looked at my friends, and their expression said, without words, you are a fool. Blew a hole in my leg. I'm okay now. I have six kids. Everything's okay, but that moment I looked the true fool to my friend. It occurred to me this week, oftentimes when you're reading the scriptures, when you're reading through books like James, you need to know God, though he loves you, though he's near to you, though he cares about you, he does want to point out your foolishness. It might not be readily apparent to you, that's the way humans work, right? But if you read the scriptures carefully, God is intent in on cleaning you up. And part of cleaning you up, part of his restoration project in your life is going to be showing you some areas where you are sinfully foolish. And that's what's going on here in our text in James 2 today. James doesn't speak to fireworks, but he does care about the foolish habit and sin of favoritism. So as we look through this chapter today, We're just going to follow along in the scenario that James brings up and realize that like a teenager who bragged about revolutionizing fireworks directly before setting his leg on fire, James helps us to understand that showing partiality actually displays our foolish heart. Let's just jump in here, verse 1, because James sets the scene better than I could in my own words. He lays out a scenario about what's going on in the church that he sees as a problem. Verse 1 of chapter 2. James says, my brothers, show no partiality. That's favoritism. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The glory of the Lord is at stake when we show favoritism. Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place, while you turn to the poor man and say, why don't you stand over there or sit down at my feet? Hopefully you can see the scene that he's describing. Outsiders from the community are coming into the church. And some of God's people, the very followers of Christ, are showing favoritism to the rich, giving him the place of honor. But to the poor, it's sitting in the back, or even worse, uh, come to the subservient position at my feet. James sees this, and he's sickened by it. He says it's foolishness. Now, he's going to talk in this chapter chiefly about uh, showing favoritism based on your monetary status, your social status, and whether you're rich or poor, but this can be applied, and I challenge you to apply it to any area of your life where you're prone to look down upon someone and instead favor someone else. Anything that they're doing, anything that they are, you think, ah, that's great. I'm going to gravitate and I'm going to love that person. That person over here doesn't have it. Mm, Not so much. That is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we look through here today, Here's what we're going to focus on. Six ways that your favoritism flaunts your foolishness. Six ways your favoritism flaunts your foolishness. Here's the first one. When you show favoritism, you reveal that you want to take God's throne. What you're really revealing is that you're wanting to take the very throne of God. Look in verse 4. Jane says, once you make these uh, sins of partiality, these favoritism-based decisions. Have you not then, verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He gets the judging language from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 15 says this, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So there is a type of judging that's appropriate. But James says you should judge with the righteousness, with the goodness that comes from being changed by Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not making discriminations based on social status. When you do, what you have done is said that something is faux pas that God allows. Your poverty is not acceptable to God. When God in actuality has seen the poor and accepted them, himself. He's not downing them because they are poor. If we do it, you begin to take his throne in a foolish way. You might remember in Romans 14, Paul addressed a very similar thing when he was writing there in Romans 14. He admonishes that if we hold things against people, there it was food. You're eating a certain type of food. I'm not eating a certain type of food. Paul was saying, if you hold that against somebody and God doesn't, what you're doing is trying to usurp his throne. Now, this year, you might be aware that it's the 400th anniversary of the death of Shakespeare, right? So if you're into the arts, there's lots of Shakespearean stuff going on right now in the artistic community. And I was thinking about and reading a little bit of the play of Hamlet recently, and there's this great scene where Claudius, if you remember, Claudius is the evil bad guy in Hamlet. He's the one who is on the throne because he has usurped Uh, his brother, and he's had him murdered. And so Claudius is the ruler. And in one act, he's standing there, and he gives this great speech, dramatic. And the whole point of the speech is that his gut is pouring out because of this evil thing that he's done. Listen to this line. Maybe I should read it in a Shakespearean voice. But oh, what form? I'm not going to do that. But you can imagine just the grit with with which the character is talking. He says, But, oh, what form of prayer can serve me now? What form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me, my foul murder. Can I say that? That cannot be, since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder. I have my crown, my own ambition, and my queen. As you look into that scene, you see Claudia saying, even my throne, my queen, everything that I have, I got it because... I went and killed my brother, and he's such a destitute saint, he can't even pray. He's like, can I even talk to God about what I've done? I've taken over my brother's throne through murder. That's awful. That man can feel that. How much more so should our grief and our hesitation be before we try to put ourselves in God's place and take over his throne by making value judgments between the poor and the rich? James is warning is that when we show favoritism, we reveal that we want to take God's throne. Secondly, second point, when you show favoritism, you expose your unbiblical worldview. When you show favoritism, you expose your unbiblical worldview. What does worldview mean anyway? Well, look in uh, verse 4. James says, you're not just judges, you're judges with what? Evil thoughts. When you talk about worldview, you're talking about someone's thought life. What do you think is good? What do you think is bad? How do you view the world in your own thoughts? James says when you show favoritism, you expose that your thinking, your worldview, is actually contrary to the biblical message. What would be an example of that? Well, there's lots of them, but here's one. It's a type of thinking that allows, when you're dealing with the poor, a materialistic worldview to dominate a gospel-centered worldview. What do I mean by materialistic worldview? Well, the fact of the matter is where we live is filled with materialistic things, right? We have couches, we have money, we have cars, we have clothes, we have tables, we have pools, we have yards. A lot of our life is dominated by things that we can touch and feel, even smell. They're just material. When we make these distinctions between the rich and the poor, what we are saying is, if you have material things, you're a success. I value you more. You don't have material things, you're not as valuable to the church, to me, or to our own God. That is an unbiblical worldview. And we see this a lot here at TCC. When we're doing ministry to the poor, We have people come in with resources, and they want to help the poor, and we want that, but the wrong way of thinking that we often have to deal with is someone who's thinking, all right, there's the poor. The way that I help chiefly is to give resources, and I'll increase their value. That's the the best thing I have for them. I've got stuff, I'll give them stuff, and their value will go up. Well, the poor make actually the same Mistake. The poor people will see a rich man coming and say, Ah, what I need from you is some of your stuff. If I had some of your stuff, I would be more valuable. People would look at me differently. They're both making the wrong decision in different directions. What we like to say here at TCC is when we're working, doing ministry among the poor, as James was doing there, let's do away with the us versus them mentality. Let's recognize that the chief things that we have to give to one another, rich to poor, poor to rich, are immaterial. Things that are spiritual, things that are relational should come first. The rich, they need the wisdom and friendship and dose of sobriety that comes with relating to a poor person. The poor person, they need patience. They need honor. They need dignity and the respect that you might give your favorite uncle. These things are going to be chief in dealing with ministry to the poor. Do we need resource transaction? Absolutely. We're building a building. I'm not saying that the poor don't need resources, but I'm saying what we have to the uttermost, the ultimate thing that we have to give to one another, is spiritual. It's gospel-oriented. The chief need that we both have is to see Jesus more clearly in the gospel and relating to one another. We can show each other our sovereign God in Jesus Christ. Favoritism, though, keeps us apart from one another and exposes this folly. So what we've seen here, when you show favoritism, you flaunt your foolishness by revealing that you want to take God's throne and exposing your own unbiblical worldview. Number three, if you're taking notes, when you show favoritism, you show that you don't understand God's plan. What you're actually showing when you show favoritism is that you don't understand God's plan. Look at verse 5. What he says, he says, listen, James says, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Do you see that word chosen? James is switching now to the language of God's electing purposes. The fact that God has a plan that he's working out in our world. Now, sometimes when you hear about God choosing things, you might get a little nervous because you're like, I don't know about that election stuff. What, he, what he's saying here is simply is that God has a special place. He has chosen people who are poor for salvation. That's what he means by rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom. God's plan involves electing the poor in the world to be rich in faith. Well, what does this mean? In what sense has our Father chosen the poor to become followers of Christ and inherit heaven? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that every single person who's poor is going to be a believer. But what it does mean is that our church should never be without people who are poor because God does not discriminate along social lines when He's saving people. There should always be poor coming into the church, being born again. Additionally, James seems to be saying that they have a special place in God's plan to save the world. In what, way, in what way do the poor have a special place? I can think of a couple of ways. So two reasons why God seems to have a special place in his salvific plan for the poor. This is one reason we make so much of Ministry of the Poor here at TCC. We're not just pulling it out of the air, we're hearing it from God's Word and we're trying to push each other towards better ministry of the poor. Here's one reason God loves us working among the poor and seeing them come to Jesus. He loves to save the poor so that no one may boast. He loves to save the poor so that no one may boast. Working amazing life-changing miracles of grace among the lowly ensures that God alone gets the credit. Grace thrives best in this soil, as it's been said. A soil of poverty, a great place for grace to be highlighted. You might remember when Paul spoke about this, famously in 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to what Paul said, verse 26. Same topic. He said, For consider your calling, brothers, so those of you who are Christians. Think about who you were. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, humbling verse, right? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. If God's church was full of only the powerful and the rich and the mighty, someone could be deceived into thinking, oh, I get this. You get rich and you buy in to God's program. That's how you do it. No, that's not how God works. I was reading this week about the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, the mid 300s AD, and there's a famous pastor there named Ambrose of Milan, Italy, who wrote about the fall of the empire. And he said this During that time when Rome, this great empire, was crumbling down, he said everything was up for sale for a price. And this was what brought every evil upon Italy and resulted in universal deterioration. He went on to talk about how uh, in Rome, you may already know this, but the military was getting puffed up to the extent where it became a place of pride to be a general. So what you could do is you could buy in and increase your rank by pain, and then people would look at you with more uh, dignity more status. And what the generals would do after they got in rank They would exaggerate their rosters, saying, we have more soldiers here than they actually did, because the more soldiers you had, the more money you got, and the more successful you look. So when the barbarians attacked Rome, they ran into these armies that on paper might have 10,000, but in actuality, you have this general boasting only has like 2,000 soldiers. It was like a sea. People were coming into the empire, attacking. It was very easy to be overthrown. God's mission in salvation is to capture all of the glory for himself. The folly of a boastful general can cut against the army's mission. A boastful person who is rich and thinks that he bought his way into heaven cuts against God's mission to get all of the glory for himself in salvation. God saves the poor so that no one may boast and undermine his vision to glorify himself. Here's another reason that God enjoys saving the poor. As God saves the poor, it gives the physical picture of our spiritual poverty. As God saves the poor, it's a physical picture of our spiritual poverty. We've talked about all the time here at TCC that we need to learn that the physical world is meant to give us a representation of deeper spiritual reality. That's why we do the Lord's Supper We've taken bread, and we're taking wine or juice, and we're putting it inside of ourselves as a picture of Christ coming by His Spirit and being intimately connected to us. When we baptize, we have a physical picture of cleansing, death, resurrection, and Jesus Christ. Those are meant to teach us about the deep spiritual things. When someone who's impoverished comes to Jesus, it's an instant and ongoing reminder of our spiritual poverty. We can remember how we were in deep need of grace, and Christ came. I needed to be adopted, and Christ came with his embrace like a brother and brought me in to the family of God. I was in need of reconciliation. Christ came and tied the knot between me and the Father. All of the deep spiritual needs that we have we can be reminded of those in ministry to the poor. James knew that, and God knows that. So when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he's always coming to the poor, especially in the book of Luke. He's seeking out the poor uh, to work amongst so that his people can see the value of remembering who we were, once were before Jesus. Again, a fourth reason, when you show favoritism, you highlight your own misconception of the rich. When you show favoritism within the church between the rich and the poor, you're actually highlighting your own misconception of the rich. This was kind of common sensey, but it's right from verse six. Look at verse six. "But you have dishonored a poor man. Are not the rich the ones who actually oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So the scenario here was an unbeliever coming into the church, probably an unbelieving poor person, an unbelieving rich man, and everybody was kowtowing, pandering to the rich guy. James's point is very practical. He's saying, right now in our church and throughout history globally, if you think of the oppression against Christians and against the poor, it's usually done by people in power who have the money to affect the systemic structures of society. Those are the people who are actually oppressing Christians. It comes from the top. If you're a believer here, you might sometime look at our government and uh, think, oh, man, they're doing something that's constricting my beliefs. You know, they're hindering me here. I don't like this law here. It feels like a straitjacket to be a believer. That goes on globally, and it's not the poor man who's making those laws. It's the rich people who are part of the oppression. Be like Robin Hood and Little John in Sherwood Forest. In comes Prince John, and they start bowing to him, right? He's rich because he took advantage of all the poor people who live in the poor. James is making a similar kind of argument. When you pander to the rich, just realize that they don't have a historic track record of returning the favor to the poor and to believers. A fifth point here. When you show favoritism, you unveil a loveless heart you show favoritism, you unveil a loveless heart. Notice how these reasons now are getting a little bit deeper and deeper at who we are in Christ. He's moved to from now from saying, you misunderstand the rich, to actually saying, you're severely lacking love in your soul. I get that from verse 8. Read with me in verse 8. He said, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then you are doing well. Jesus said a very similar thing in Matthew 22. Famously, you'll remember, he was also asked about the law and what's what's important. What's the big deal? What are the things that we should be concentrating on as your followers? What's the main thing? And what he said, of course, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the foremost commandment. But then he said, of course, Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he tells this story, right? Of a man, when he's talking about neighbor love, a destitute man who had impoverished because he, somebody's stolen all of his stuff, somebody who was needy. When when Jesus talked about neighbor love, he often talked about the poor. And so had James here. Something uh, also to notice, you might remember in Romans 13:8, Paul also talked about neighbor love. He said, as Christians, we should owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So both Jesus and James and Paul, all three of them could say, if you want to please God, love your neighbor. Now, Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. But Paul and James didn't include the love God part. Why is that? Why can Paul and James, when they're talking about loving neighbor, neighbor love, They don't bring up God love. I think it's because both Paul and James agree that loving your neighbor is a sign. It's a practical outworking of the love that's been created deep down in your heart. In other words, if you don't have a love for the poor, James would say, you're not actually following Christ with his heart. You don't have the heart of Christ because his neighbor love extended to all people, especially to the poor. Now, let's break that down a little bit. We had an elder retreat this week, where the elders simply called a retreat, but we just get together and pray and plan. Not very retreatish, but we met together and we were talking together and we were praying together. And we said, "What keeps our church from digging in and diving in in relationships with the poor people in our community? What are what are some barriers?" Uh, even the first step, you might have had the experience. Um, you, you meet someone who's about in, uh, he, he looks like you. He looks like he makes as much money as you, drives a similar car to you. You meet towards him and it's, you meet with him, it's easy to take one step towards him. And then you meet somebody else who doesn't look like you. You just have the sense that he's poor and you're, you're reluctant to take that, that one step toward him. What, what's blockiness there? Well, there's a couple of things deep down. One reason, really practically, if you've tried ministry of the poor before, you may have experienced that when you're in a relationship with the poor, a lot of challenges, a lot of problems could come with it, right? The poor in Raleigh have a variety of housing issues, family problems, educational difficulties, health issues, financial strain, relational challenges, just a big ball of wax. And some people were scared to take that step because they don't want to step in all this problems. I got a lot of mess of my own over here. That's enough. I don't want to enter into your mess. What keeps us there? Well, it's fear, or the Bible might call it idolatry, something that controls your heart and keeps you from showing the love of Christ to someone else. What are some of these common idols? We talk about them a lot here at TCC. We could have an idol of comfort that blocks our mission, How would that work itself out? Well, we're not going to engage with the poor if we feel that our precious comfort is going to be threatened. We might have to speak or hear some words that just make us uncomfortable. I might have to go over to this house or this park, and that's a little scary to me, right? I'm out of my comfort zone. What that means is I value comfort more than showing the love of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the remedy? How can we attack that idol? I'm thankful that one of the chief glories of the gospel is that Christ himself cannot be stripped away from you. If your comfort is in Jesus, that comfort can sustain you through any crazy situation you encounter in relating to the poor. That's why Jesus could say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest almost like he expected you to be weary and heavy laden. And you'll find that if you're dealing with the poor. But have you considered that God might just want you in a relationship that interrupts your sleep, costs you some resources, tips your calendar upside down so that you will be forced to run to Christ as your rest? He ordains these things, To give you greater comfort in him, and we should pursue that. What's another idol that might keep you from relating well to the poor? Well, something we call an idol of control. You know what that feels like. If you're the type who likes to wake up in the day and you've got your schedule set, you're a planner, you like to have everything in a row, in a box, that gives you a great feeling of accomplishment. You just like controlling the relationships you're in. Well, with any relationship, be it marriage, parenting, there's a certain level of control that you're letting go of, you've noticed. If you're relating to anyone sincerely, you're actually not running the thing. It's a mutual thing. Well, when you're joining with the poor, you're walking alongside them. How much more so are things often feeling like they're slipping through your fingers? They're just out of your reach. Some of us can make an idol of that, and it keeps us away from the poor. But isn't the very core of following Jesus a relinquishing of control? Isn't that why you call him Lord? You're not calling yourself Lord, right? Hopefully when you pray in your devotions, you're not running to yourself and saying, Lord me, I pray. No, you're saying, Lord Jesus, and just by saying that, you're giving up control. You're my king. You have stuff in this relationship with this poor person for me that can glorify yourself, and that can give me great joy. is the actual, almost counterintuitive giving up of control that leads to greater bliss in Christ. I don't know what my schedule's going to be. There might be a kid here from the hood who's in a bad spot, and he has to sleep at my house tonight. That wasn't on my radar. But that's what God has for you in dealing with ministry This conversation is eating into my lunchtime. I now have to talk to you for 15 minutes? And now you want me to call you back? That's something that God has ordained and that he controls for your joy and maturation into Jesus Christ. So as we looked at the text, we've seen how favoritism of the rich over the poor can flaunt your foolishness by showing your desire to take God's place as king exposing our unbiblical worldview, showing you don't understand God's plan, highlighting our misconceptions of the rich, unveiling our loveless heart. Now James goes one more step further. He's already said, watch out, you might be loveless inside. Next, he said, favoritism can flaunt your foolishness by affirming your path towards death. This is as serious as James could be here, saying your favoritism could indicate that you're not on a path to heaven at all. You're on a path to death. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Notice the convicted language. He's talking to believers here. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. That's kind of the say what part. You mean to tell me that I could be living a thriving spiritual life in many ways and still be held accountable for sin at one point? I could have a good morning devotional life. I share my faith. I listen to Christian radio. I love my family, I'm raising them in homeschool, I'm doing everything I think you want me to do, and yet I could be held accountable for favoritism? That seems to be what he's saying here. Let's read on, verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What happened here? I thought we were talking about ministry of the poor. Why is he bringing up murder? Is he actually comparing murder to overlooking the poor among us in our community? Well, there's a vast difference on one level, but on another level, a deep level, they are both indications of a heart that's rebelling against God. So James feels the freedom to say, you know what? A man over here might not be an adulterer, But he killed somebody. He murdered somebody, so he's guilty. Likewise, you might be worshiping Christ, but if you're neglecting the poor, you could be on your way to condemnation. Why is that? How can he say this? Well, he goes on to talk about something in verse 12 that's very helpful. Listen to what he says in verse 12. So instead of ignoring the poor, instead, so speak and so act as those are to be, who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What in the world does that mean? I don't understand what is this law of liberty he's bringing up here. Because it seems to be, if I live under this law of liberty, I'm not going to be condemned. If I don't live under the law of liberty, I'm condemned. Here's, here's the way to think about it. When you were an unbeliever, the scriptures say you were captured, you were shackled to sin and death. By that, I simply mean that you could not help but dishonor God in your actions and in your thoughts. Doesn't mean you were as bad as you could be, but it does mean that every thought was motivated by a self worship tendency in an unbeliever. They're not orienting themselves to pleasing God. Pleasing themselves, but when you became a believer, when Christ came, lived a perfect life, died in your place, rose again, what happened to Jesus Christ? His righteousness was given to you. The Holy Spirit came in and unlocked your chains, broke the chains and captivity of the sin, so that you're now free like the shades being drawn up, the curtains pulled back, free to see the glory of Jesus. And when you see Jesus's glory, Now you have the liberty to love. You're no longer shackled by selfish constraint. Now you can freely love anyone, not based on their wealth, but instead based on the fact that God has created everyone in his image and they are worthy of love. Based on the fact that God is aiming at the poor, he's shooting his gun of salvation right at the impoverished levels and we can go in and have impact we can make a difference because we have the liberty now to love and love well. That's what he's talking about when he's saying the law of liberty, being free to love others through the power of the Holy Spirit. He caps it off in verse 13. He says, for judgment is without mercy. And when he says judgment here, he's talking about the end time judgment of God. He's saying God will judge you without mercy if you are one who has shown no mercy. That sounds really harsh, doesn't it? I thought we were judged on the base of Christ's merit. I thought Christ earned our salvation. Are you telling me here, James, that we're earning our salvation? by showing mercy? That's not what he's saying. He's showing that if you have truly been born again, truly changed, truly following Jesus. Your actions will be transformed. You will be a person of mercy. If you are not a person of mercy, Christ will say, I don't even recognize you. Remember the story he told where we're at the end time setting and there's a group of people who say, ah, I loved you. Let me into heaven. There's a group of people Another group of people that say, I love you. Let me into heaven. And one group, he says, come on in with me. And the other group, he says, I don't even know you guys. And they're like, what do you mean? I didn't know you. We're surprised at this. And he said, well, I can tell by your treatment of the poor, people who were in prison, people who were hungry, who were thirsty. I can tell by your treatment who really knew me. Proof is in the pudding. That's what James is saying here when he says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But the good news is mercy triumphs over judgment. When we concentrate on the mercy given us at the cross of Christ, our urge to discriminate disappears. Our urge to place value on people based on their materialistic possession is dissolved because when God chose us, He didn't see value there. He wanted to make us more valuable by giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we show a life of mercy, it will be proof that we're walking with Christ and we have his righteousness in us, and there will be no judgment for us in the last day. All others will hear the fatal words of Jesus Christ, depart from me, for I never knew you. As I said earlier, in this text, James confines himself to the distinguishing marks between a a rich man and a poor man and how we might discriminate there. But I do want to urge you, especially now as we come uh, come upon the part of our service where we eat the Lord's Supper together, I want to urge you to think about other ways in which you might regularly be showing favoritism. It's not just based on wealth in our society Maybe you look at someone's educational level, and you say, I, I'm really going to flock towards the educated people. The uneducated people, and they don't have anything to offer me. I'd be better off here, right? Or maybe you're a life stager. We hear this here at TCC. Hey, I'm in the church. I really just want to be with more people in my life stage. I'm not necessarily interested in bonding with anybody older than me or younger. I got three kids, and I want to be with somebody else who has three kids. They understand me. That could be the same seedbed that James is speaking against here. If you're looking down on someone for not having what you want them to have, perk up because you could be full of the same sinfulness. How many different friends do you have of a different race? If you are in the majority culture here, are you actively pursuing someone of a different race or do you tend to look down on them? Backwards, if you're of the minority culture, do you always flock to other minorities saying, yeah, these are my people. This is who I want to be around. James says we're all united in Christ. We should come together and reflect these things. And I pray now that God would help us all to see where we're prone to show favoritism and allow us to drape over ourselves this cloak of neighbor love, especially with the poor. Like I said, in a moment after I pray, we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. There's visitors here because it's a holiday. I just want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come and take the table with us. This is how we do it. We have tables at the front, table at the back. After I pray, the musicians will get to play. And uh, we just invite you to meditate on the Scriptures, think deeply on the Word of God. And whenever you're ready, approach the table, take the elements back to your chair And then prayerfully, when it's time and you're ready, take the elements to yourself. I would bid you during this time, think about your mission to the poor. Think about how you're living your life. Are there barriers there that James has revealed in his scriptures that you can overcome in Christ today? Let's pray.